there are things in life that are inevitable. Death, taxes, and data protection. Today, we talk to NetUp IT and the storage service design team about how they tackle this real-world problem and what they see as the future of data protection. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. I am Justin Parisi and sitting right next to me is... Uh, Glenn Sizemore. How's it going today, Glenn? We're sharing a mic today because we have a full house. We have the entire NetApp IT team here. I think um, this is the whole staff, right? I mean, there's nobody else? Yeah, there's about three. There's more? Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to be able to fit everybody in here. It's going to be very hot. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we can get all three hundred of them into the podcast studio. Uh, listeners who joined us last week. Uh, last week we we brought in uh, NetApp IT and and Evan Miller and talked about service uh, design and some of the work that we've done internally within NetApp IT to kind of streamline and optimize our our day to day operations and how we go about storage. Right. Um, as an outset of, of of that conversation, you know, kind of walking out in the halls after we finished recording last week, we, we found out that the reason that Evan was in town is uh, NetApp IT is going through another one of these these workshops right now. Uh, so we, we we asked and and they very graciously agreed to come back. So you know, today we're going to kind of walk through uh, the next step in this process. Right? They've got a service catalog. Uh, they're 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 working uh, based off fixed provisioning and fixed out al- fixed allocation. So now the next step uh, is is kind of layering in data protection into that. So, so that's kind of the goal for today's show. What do you think, Justin? I think that sounds like a pretty good goal to me. Um, so since not everyone heard last week's show, potentially, we're going to go ahead around the room again and introduce ourselves. So if it seems repetitive, bear with us. Eduardo Rivera is the first one we're going to talk to. So Eduardo, what do you do and what group are you in? Hey, guys. I'm Eduardo. I work for Customer One, which is NetApp IT's uh, internal organization. And we we take care of all the back office of like uh, you know traditional enterprise stuff like ERP and EBI and that sort of thing. And my position within that organization is to be a storage architect. So I help you know kind of build and and, and uh, deploy the vision of storage as it pertains to the technology and the the thing that you know the the devices that NetApp builds and, and sells to customers. We consume it and deploy them and use them and put them to the test and we run a business on it. You definitely, you guys are doing a great job. You know. Exploring the the waters, testing the waters of your overall environments to help customers understand their environments better. Um, Stetson, what do you do here? So I work with Eduardo, and um, my my role is is focused a little more around you know how do we communicate what it is we're doing. So Eduardo and I, um, you know, kind of do this stuff together. And most importantly, my focus is really on a lot of the tools and the architecture of the tools that wrap around the gear that we deploy and, 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 and consume and feed that into other mechanisms such as the CMDB and whatnot. So Stetson's the tool man. If you want to call me so. Okay, the tool man. All right, and finally, last but not least, Evan Miller, what do you do here? I lead a group of uh, executive-facing architects. Uh, I'd say some of the 
finest uh, consultants I know are uh, in this team. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, full disclosure, they're in the room. They're in the room, yes. <laughs> and we've done about 60 or so uh, service design workshops, primarily focused on storage to date uh, with customers. Uh, and we really want to start branching into data protection, object service design, platform design. In fact, we've even started to do 3D visualization as a service design uh, in the oil and gas sector. So uh, we're, we're going to start trying to cover the entire portfolio so that all of our products uh, can be expressed as services uh, from IT to the business. Data protection, that's kind of like the forgotten child. You know, everybody... They want to think about the production side of business because that's the immediate return. But what they don't think about often is the data protection side and what that means for their business when things go wrong. And because it doesn't happen right away, you don't necessarily always think about it. It's not always top of mind, but you do have to allocate budget for that. Isn't that right, Glenn? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I, I really love the way uh, that uh, John Spinks put it on our data protection extravaganza uh, back about three or four weeks ago, right? Uh, backup is boring. Restores are interesting, right? <laughs> that uh, nobody really thinks about data protection until all of a sudden the data's gone. And then all of a sudden you really start looking around going, where's the backup guy? Was that backed up? Why wasn't it backed up? Well, when was the last time it was backed up? Um, so it's, it's absolutely one of those things where if you just sit down and put a little bit of time and, and thought into it, you can really avoid some headaches down the line. And I think we also sort of take it for granted, right? There's things in data protection like just RAID or RAID DP, right, that, that, that just exist and you don't think about them or snapshots to that degree. So to really, you know, we'll talk more about this, but to really have a complete data protection strategy, you really have to consider all the things, snapshots, mirroring, vaulting, archiving, and so on and so forth. Yeah, the worst part of that conversation that you have when things go wrong is not the part of where were my backups, it's the oh, you didn't give me budget to do that, right? <laughs> so it becomes like this this pass the ball, pass the hot potato back and forth, right? Well, yeah, and, 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 and the other side of that coin, honestly, is you, know, the, you, you get the statement of, well, you didn't pay for this, and then often you get the flip side, which is the business coming back going, you never told me I needed to. Well, you didn't they, tell they, me they I was exposed. Yeah. yeah, they assume it's done. So yeah. that, that's very interesting because the, the direction where we're headed now is we're coming up with what, what I call the, the next evolution of the shopping cart when you're out shopping for storage. So when you're consuming storage in NetApp IT, the vision that we have is, okay, you select your, your service level, the service levels like what Eduardo came up with, value, performance, or extreme. The next item you're going to select in your shopping cart is the type, the, the, the level of data protection that you need. Um, some application owners may actually become or be a little overzealous in what services they, they, they procure. So there is, um, we are actually working on policies that define outside of the application owner's opinion, so to speak, what is the service level that they are going to require. And the company as a whole is who agrees to that, not one department or one unit. So once we standardize on that, that's the vision that we have going forward of what's the storage, what is the data protection service level. It may not even be an option to select. It may just come inherent based on the business unit that's actually purchasing storage. So it's going to be abstracted from them and packaged up into this policy that just occurs. So what is NetApp IT doing to solve that problem? I'll answer from, from, our, from my perspective. So. It is a complicated problem to have, um, and mainly because, uh, as I pointed out, you have a lot of parties that need to agree of what is my desired data protection scheme. And, uh, and frankly, 
we ask application teams and sometimes they don't know, right? So we need to come up with something that is reasonable. And uh, and up until this point, I think we have pretty reasonable protection scheme, which includes obviously using a, a standard number of snapshots and you know, keep us a certain number of dailies, uh, dailies, weeklies, monthly on the primary storage. Then that's actually mirrored to a secondary device that often is in a different data center. Actually, 100% today is a different data center. So what we do is snap mirror, snap vault, and then from then on, it either goes either to um, long-term archival through tape device or it just rolls off, right? And, and we apply that to pretty much all the production volumes that make up our environment. And that's, I would say, standard. And that came up from the ground up, from IT up. Now, what we're trying to do with this data protection uh, uh, workshop is trying to, to refine that a little bit more and be able to match better to what the business continuity you know, uh, objectives are like it maybe maybe somebody has a, a smaller RPO or, or what we're calling OTO these days, um, but that's really where we are today. We have a standard number of uh, data protection schemes based on the technology that we that we deploy, and and we're just trying to make it a, I guess more uh, more of a menu, more of a, a service. All the challenges that NetApp IT is having are really common. As I was presenting it in Vegas and in Berlin, my initial expectation of our customer base in general was that they would be fairly mature in this data protection space. I mean, Snapshot, SnapMirror, SnapVault, all these backup products have been around for so long. I thought, man, I'm a little worried that you know this, this, uh, this whole topic is already well covered. And I was really surprised. Everybody is still struggling with well-defined data protection protection services across the customer base. So what NetFIT is experiencing is really common. Yeah, totally agreed. Uh, based on my own kind of interaction with our field and, and honestly, my own experience as a customer, although that was a while ago now. It's been a while since I had that hat. But, but even back then, uh, it was a real problem, right? We had this portfolio of technologies. And as an IT organization, we would implement them uh, using what we thought was, was best. But, but quite frankly, we didn't always hit it. You know, there were times where we would overprotect an application and underprotect another one. And, mm-hmm. and it was because we, we didn't really have a mechanism in our tool bag to go and have that conversation with, with the business to, mm-hmm. to, to fundamentally go establish, like, what is really important? Like, what, okay, everyone says e- email is important. What happens when email goes down? What is the impact to that, right? Is, mm-hmm. is this an impact that we can work around or, or fundamentally do, like, Everything comes to a grinding halt, and, and we stop making money. And that's exactly the analysis that, oh, he's not here with us today, but uh, Ken Soka has been doing with the application team, trying to classify them. What is the impact to the business based on a revenue-generating uh, measurement? Like uh, how much revenue is impacted if you are down? And that's a good way to do it. look at it, right? If you go ask, and uh, you know, you can ask, uh, I don't know, an like, administrator has some, some PowerPoints on a, on a SIF share, and you ask him, well, what do you need for, for that in terms of data protection? Well, I need zero RPO. Right, but, but the business is not going to go down if you don't have your PowerPoints. At the same time, you go talk to, I don't know, maybe somebody running EBI. I said, well, I, I need four-hour RPO. So they, they, don't, they don't really match up if you start asking the people. You need to classify them based on their impact to the business. This is like um, in the storage service design workshop, we do what's called an IO density analysis, right, to gather the facts, what's really required by the application set. And again, Ken Sacco is building this really good assessment methodology so that instead of guessing, we can now ask a, a fairly detailed set of questions, but quickly, so that we can actually assess what does the application really need, and then 
uh, match that to the service level that's going to really provide what that application needs based on the data criticality. So this mature this is a big leap in, in maturity, I think, for NetApp IT. And we want to take this out to the customer base and teach them to do the same thing. The, the, other, the other issue, too, that we have to look at or the gap that there is, is that we're looking at it from the application or business function perspective. So just because the application has this particular, you know, RTO and RPO, it doesn't automatically mean that as a storage guys, we're going to set a five minute snap mirror update interval. So that is the common mistake that a lot of us make is, is not having that full context of the entire application stack. So what we're doing is we're anticipating that, okay, for this particular business or application requirement, this is how far we're going to go with the storage configuration. The rest of the way, you're going to have to use other layers in the stack, such as, you know, your server clustering or application clustering and the redundancy in those layers. The storage can only go but so far if, in fact, we expect the storage to scale. Yeah, that's totally, uh, you know, that, that's, I've, I've talked about this before on this very podcast, you know, just, just anecdotally going to trade shows, going into and meeting with customers, uh, d- doing what, what TMEs do. Um, you go and talk to a customer, and, and you said it perfectly, Eduardo, right? You go and you, you, you sit down and you go, what is your RPO for this data? And the answer is almost unanimously the same every single time. <laughs> uh, I can't lose anything ever, and it must always be available. Well, they're very ready to pay for that, right? It costs well, money to, to, to keep it up 100%. Precisely. And that's what I love about this model because it provides a mechanism where IT can seamlessly communicate with the rest of the business and, and be transparent about their complications and challenges. Guys, we know how to make applications 100% uptime, zero possibility of data loss. We know how to do that. It is incredibly expensive. And if you can if you can pay for it, we can do it. But but nine times out of ten, when you really start peeling that onion, it's just not worth the investment. It turns out that you can take 15 minutes of data loss and, and the train doesn't come off the tracks and you can cut the infrastructure bill by three quarters. It's just not worth it. And, and, it's not, and as Stetson was saying, it, you know, it may not just be the ones there. For example, snapshots take you so far. I can take snapshots every minute if I want to. Sometimes we take it very aggressively. Sometimes we back it up. That doesn't mean that you're bound by that schedule to as your only uh, point of recovery, right? If your application, let's say it's an Oracle database, you take snapshots every hour. Well, if you're running in log archive mode, you, you, you restore it using the latest snapshot and you roll it forward the archive. So you have a more granular um, control of that restore depending on how you integrate with the application layer. So the, the restore and data protection scheme has to take into consideration everything, not just not just the storage layer. And this cost issue is a big one. So we have a very large customer in the oil and gas space that everybody would recognize. And they are they were so chaotic about their data protection policy and they were so overprotecting everything that they made a knee-jerk reaction as a cost-cutting measure to stop all data protection. They literally stopped doing any backups or replication to any target site. Nothing bad could happen from that. Right. <laughs> now, in their defense, they've built very hardened bunker-like data centers that are flood-proof, fireproof, everything. But still, that was, that was the knee-jerk reaction of, of their, their board and their executives that we don't know what to back up. We don't know why we're backing it up. We don't know anything. And so they just stopped and they said, wait a minute, until we have a rational approach to this, why are we spending all this money? So cost is an issue. 
So, so perhaps that's a great place for us to go ahead and pivot and get mm-hmm. into this next step of the conversation. I feel like we've done a fantastic job of, of, of really communicating the problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and how this problem layers on top of, you know, solving the last one. The last one was, I don't know how much storage to buy and I don't know how to run my infrastructure. Okay, well, we solved that problem. Mm-hmm. We know how to buy, we know how to deploy, we know how to provision allocations or provision applications. So, so uh, let's go ahead and talk about... Uh, how is NetApp IT going about rationalizing this process of, of having a data protection system, right? A, a methodology. Uh, I, don't, I don't know who wants to lead this, Eduardo or Evan. I don't, I don't quite know which one of you is, is driving. Go ahead. Sure. So <clears throat> the data protection workshop really begins with this notion of assessing data criticality. That has to come first. It's like IO density for storage. What are the facts? And so... Um, uh, Ken is leading the way, Ken Sacco, uh, by building this assessment methodology that uh, application owners can very quickly say, answer a few questions, and now we understand data criticality. Now we know the range of data criticality. Now we can build a set of data protection service levels by RPO, by operational RPO, because we have this notion of OPO and RPO that are slightly different use cases. And so now we can build this range of service levels. And the traditional notion of data protection is we'll just let everybody pick whatever they want from a data protection standpoint. But from a governance standpoint, that's chaos. And so there's going to be a very well-defined process so that the application owners don't actually pick their service level. They answer some key questions, and that determines the service level that they go into. Non-technical key questions. Yes. Right. Oh. About what kind of revenue would be lost if this application service would be down, for example. You're like the match.com of data protection. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> What's the reputational risk? What's the financial risk, right? The legal risk, all those kinds of questions that really determine what data protection is required. And then, of course, design the topology. This is where Eduardo jumps in and talks about what would be all the topologies necessary to provide those levels of service. All right, and, and it's from a technical, you know, so so you talk about matching the customer <laughs> or the client or the application to a data protection service. Well, we also define the data protection services, right? And my goal, at least from IT, is to have very few choices. Let's say like three. Like mm-hmm. I want to have like, let's say, uh, administrative, uh, critical, or or I don't know what the names are, but administrative, mm-hmm. critical, and then like uh, mission enterprise critical. And then from there, we can do additions like, Administrative plus archive or critical plus archive, and and what that translates to from a from a technology perspective is that I can provide you know local backup through things like snapshot. I can provide local backup extended from from local snapshot by doing something like SnapMirror, SnapVault locally. I can do it remotely by re- replicating somewhere remote. And beyond that, and obviously the retention and the frequency of those uh, snapshots determine <laughs> which one of those buckets uh, we're talking about. Beyond that, now we talk about archive, and that's where all the some of, some of the new technology that we're deploying is going to come into play, uh, namely auto vault, storage grid, and, and those sort of things. Yeah. So before uh, before we actually uh, pick apart archive, because I'm mm-hmm. super interested in specifically like what what's your opinion of how you're going to solve the archive question is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another one of those topics that we've spent a lot of time on, uh, but but it's something customers challenge with, or, or struggle with constantly. So I'm not afraid to just keep diving into it until I feel like the the horse is mm-hmm. dead, buried, and evaporated. <laughs> um, where are you rationalizing those methodologies? Like what are snapshots? Uh, what are you willing to use a local snapshot for, and when do you require a snap vault copy of that snapshot to exist? All right. So let me 
let me get a little more detail on what we're doing. So in general, we have a what we call production filers and data and what we call sub-production. And that's like development tests, everything else. So for everything across the board, production and sub-production, we have a default uh, snapmare schedule. And if I remember correctly, I think it's like uh, six, four-hour snapshots uh, of uh, hourly. So we have like uh, throughout the day. Then we have, I think, like seven dailies and maybe three weeklies and a couple monthlies or something. But that, that may be scaled back depending on the change rate. So that that's a default like snapshot schedule for everybody. Beyond that, for Snapball and Snapmare, well, we we have either we actually we used to be very big into Snapmare, and now we're really going into Snapvault because it allows us to do longer retention on the on the destination. So now everything's moving into Snapvault, cluster that, cluster data on top to cluster data on top, and that's for everything that's production data, and that's going from say our production data center in Hillsborough to our back of environment in Sunnyvale. Uh, so that's that's kind of like a replication scheme. Then beyond that. For SOX compliance and to other particular applic- uh, applications that require it, it goes from that secondary filer to the tape device, and then it goes into, you know, man- managed by our third-party tape uh, tape vendor. So that's sort of the life cycle of most of the, the the applications. Now we also have a lot of customization, right? DBAs and other application uh, owners have access to, um, you know, Snap Manager for Oracle, Snap Manager for this or the other, and they can set up their own. Uh, applicate uh, their own snapshot schedules and replications based on their needs. So that's a, you know, I'll say a five thousand foot picture of what we what we do today. I feel like Glenn just worked in the is a snapshot a backup question again. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to keep just asking this to everybody because yeah. uh, you get slightly different answers, uh, and and I think they're all valid. You know, it, it, it's helpful to understand the thought process behind the person who's answering it because if you it, if you understand why, you almost always agree. The key question is the use case, right? Why is that backup occurring? Is it because you're trying to protect against an actual disaster event, a big system failure? Or is it really just, I'm recovering from something I deleted or corrupted, right? So a snapshot is a backup for the use case of, I deleted or corrupted something, and I need to go to a prior copy or image of that. It is not a backup for a disaster, obviously. <laughs> and so when we take apart the use cases, then it becomes really clear. That's why we call we have what's called an operational recovery point objective that a snapshot satisfies, but it does not satisfy an, a recovery point objective for a disaster. Make yeah. sense? So the answer is, it depends. Yes. <laughs> but but uh, no, I, I, I agree with Evan's uh, um, you know, explanation, but it in my opinion, it's absolutely a backup, and 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 it's by far the tool that is used the most for to restore from, mm-hmm. right? Like like it very very seldomly do you ever restore from a snap vault destination, right? Uh, it's very often the restore for local backup because the majority of the problems that you encounter is when you know something got deleted, something got corrupted, something got you know messed up in some way, and we need yes you know a couple hours away uh, restoration and that snapshots. Yeah, it's about statistical probability of events, right? Statistical probability of a deletion or corruption is extremely high. Yeah. Right. Probability of an airplane hitting the data center very, very low. This yeah. goes into exactly what Eduardo was saying, which which is why he's comfortable saying that he wants to make the data protection service really simple, maybe like three services, because as you can tell, there, there there's a high level of confidence about what those use cases really are. What 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 is it? What scenarios do we have? What is the the statistical probability of those scenarios? And that's what empowers us to be able to really boil it down to make it really simple. 
Yeah. Evan, uh, ORO, that's a new one on me. Did you guys coin that yourself, or, or is that something that, that has been out there? Um, I'd say the NetApp IT and our service design team may have coined that. Um, this notion of operational point objective and operational recovery is different than disaster. Right? Yeah. 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 I really love the way of, of kind of breaking that down. Mm-hmm. You know, t- typically I would explain it as, as uh, backup versus archive. Right. Uh, but but that is a much more clear way of communicating those different use cases, mm-hmm. right? The operational administrative error data protection use cases where, you know, IT generally just runs blanket controls across the board because human beings are interacting with the infrastructure, which means stuff's going to happen, right? right. Um, and then there's the, the, as you said, the data protection or, or, or disaster, disaster recovery, mm-hmm. you know, flood, fire, mm-hmm. you know, terrible mechanical failures use cases that you also have to protect for. Absolutely. I think that the reason why it's such a good analogy and, and such a good term is because it takes it from what to what and why, mm-hmm. right? You're, t- you're, you're addressing the, the why do I care about this? And it's hard to do that with one term. You know, it's, it's usually you have to go into it's, – it's like you have to explain a joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You explain the joke, it's, it's not, not funny, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's uh, – I feel like we, we now have a, a really good understanding of what you're doing uh, going through and, and developing this data protection catalog. And, and uh, I really love the idea of uh, not presenting a menu like traditional like cloud menus, right? You know, pick your data protection policy, ABC, here's how much you pay per month. But doing it by, you know, answer these three to five questions and, and we will – output a data protection policy on the back end that takes all this other stuff into consideration, like who's dependent upon you, what business unit are you in? Do you have the budget for that level of data protection? Because that is part of the conversation. And if not, maybe we need to go get you that budget because we found a hole, um, all all of that stuff. So uh, how, how... how uh, perhaps now is the, the, the right place for us to, to kind of dive into this a little bit. Uh, what does this look like from a workshop perspective? How do you actually go through and, and, and develop this in conjunction? Yeah, it's this, it starts with data criticality and how do you assess it, right? So um, we, we believe that we're going to build a very repeatable methodology out of this by starting with an assessment process that we help the customer to understand. We might run them through a few sample applications to help them learn that assessment process and then hand it off to them so they can continue to execute it. Then the next step is, okay, then what's the catalog that would result from the expected range of answers out of that assessment process? And get very, very crisp and clear on that catalog. What are the RPOs and the OPOs and retention policies and so forth that come in that catalog? But again, don't don't let people, you know, just choose what they want because it's the same problem as how how many IOPS do you need? Well, I don't know, right? Or, or they lie <laughs> or whatever, right? And so we have to have that rational process. And then behind that, then that drives the topology, the architecture, and the choices around uh, technology. Is, is there an equivalent of IOPS per terabyte in, in the data protection model? Have you guys uh, f- figured out a way to simplify it down to It's OPO and RPO. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's pretty simple. And, and what what this what what this whole conversation here about is, is all about is really what customer one is really offering to NetApp and NetApp customers. 
You know, we're going beyond just the technology implementation that you can just stand up in Iraq. We, we actually have the true business case and the, the true business problem that we're trying to solve. And, and we don't have all the answers yet. Yeah. We, um, we, we serve at the test bed for all these workshops. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we benefit from them, right? So, so we develop it together. We go through the motions and takes some time to figure it out. And then Evan has a great workshop that he can go present to some other people. Because we really <laughs> do have the problem in that app yeah. IT. It's mm-hmm. not synthetic. This is true. We're running a real business here. And this partnership, I appreciate so much with NetIT. It is it is awesome. Uh, uh, not only we become really good business partners, we become good friends as well uh, because we're learning together. And and so, I mean, looking forward, we could do object service design and and really flesh out the whole portfolio together. So you mentioned object. Now it's time to really get that. L- let's get to the part I've been I've been holding off. I've been literally <laughs> just watching the counter on this recording. Click up, going. Ah, we haven't talked enough yet. We can't go into that yet. Um, but I feel like we've crossed the threshold. Uh, let, let's let's get into how are you guys going to do archive? I, I, I think this so, comes down to AltaVault and Storage Grid. But, yeah, but I'm really interested in the details if you can share them. So, yeah, no, I, I'll show I'll show you what I have so far. So so I mentioned archive, and archive is yeah, that's one of these services that we talk about, right? And Traditionally, in NetApp IT and most enterprise customers, archive is tape. Where we send stuff to tape, and you know, hopefully, we can restore it one day in the future. Uh, you know, sometimes I get like I remember <laughs> in past uh, in past jobs, they say like set the retention to infinite. <laughs> what, how in the world would I ever return, restore that tape? Well, well, that's a different story. Well, we'll, we'll maybe somebody else will figure it out because I don't work there anymore. But <laughs> um, but no. So so when it comes to archive, what we our future is clearly altable, right? Uh, we have a tape device. We have net backup, sending stuff to tape and sending it over to our third-party uh, tape uh, manager, and and ultimately, I think uh, you know some of that that infrastructure on the tape side uh, needs to be altable. It just makes sense, right? Uh, we can integrate it with net backup. We can integrate it with a uh, um, what's it called Convo IntelliSnap now, and there's a whole bunch of other uh, backup software. But but when I talk about archive, we're talking about going from this snapshot to snap vault to you know whatever backup software we use over to AutoVault, and AutoVault just throws it to the cloud. Now, that cloud, what would that be? In our case, it's going to be storage grid, which is your object storage. Yeah, so uh, I'm curious. Like, I've got my own biased answer to this, but uh, w- how did you make that determination to go ahead and say, we're going to use storage grid instead of we're going to use Glacier or we're going to use Nearline? Well, so, so here's the deal. So, so for storage grid, although it's part of this archival you know, uh, ecosystem that I just described, it's not just for that, right? So, so, so we we have a, you know, we have ONTAP, we have E-series, you know, so we have block and file covered well, but, you know, to be honest, we don't really have an internal object storage deployment yet, right? And 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 storage grid gives us that, and and in the future, you know, a lot of the applications that we do today are very enterprisey, right? There are databases running on NFS or or Fire Channel or whatnot, but the future application development is really using objects, just like people that are developing stuff with Amazon and whatnot. And and we are building an internal private cloud. And the part of that strategy of internal private cloud is to have an object storage repository that will serve not only as a collection of uh, backups from AutoVault, but also as a object storage for applications and end users. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, so so the decision to stand up uh, our own internal object was, mm-hmm. was really just because, you know, there's more than just archive use cases here. Yeah. Platform three in this transition, there are new applications that that only speak S three. Yeah. Uh, you know, we need to have a way to to store that data if if we're going to be a twenty yeah. first century it, IT shop. And, and not only that, yes, there's applications that only speak S three because they're designed that way. But there's applications that were designed, frankly, poorly 
to speak to a file system. Uh, that they shouldn't be speaking to a file system, especially if you're collecting a lot of, let's say, user-generated content or, or, or unstructured data. If you fill a file system with a, a million files, it's going to fall apart, no matter whose file system it is. Object storage is the right solution for that. And that's you know, sort of what, why, part of the impetus be, be behind deploying it. And this leads into why do we need a service design workshop for object, right? So in the block and file world, we've chosen IOPS for terabyte as the differentiator and latency as a secondary differentiator between service levels. In the data protection space, it's OPO and RPO. In the object space, it's the object policy that differentiates a service level from another, right? Mm -hmm. In it might be retention of objects, it might how it's be it's how it's geodistributed, for example. And so that range of object policy is really what the object service yeah. uh, will be designed around. Yeah, the problems that we solve with storage the problems that we solve with object storage are different than the problems we solve with on top and NFS and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and and by virtue of, of us having this 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 interest in in understanding and managing cost, we also have to factor or consider whether or not cataloging is required for this 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 object um, storage we're using. So, if cataloging is required, for example, Eduardo wants to, to to get off of tape and start using AltaVault for that, then obviously we need to use some type of cataloging software, which with with the associated cost licensing cost with it. But not everything that we're archiving actually needs to be cataloged. It can be home directories or it could be a number of different things. We don't really need to be cataloging that. So there's a different cost structure for that as well. Sounds like we've got the the notion of storage grid and object storage down. Um, we've really addressed that. So let's talk a little bit about where. And when I say where, I don't just mean where we're putting our data, the cloud, of course. Also, where are we going in the future, right? I mean, how are, okay. we, how are we addressing the data fabric? How are we taking on SnapMirror to everything? All right, I'll, I'll take that. So, so today, I'll, I'll start today, and we'll go quickly through to there. But um, so we're building objects of storage grid infrastructure in in RTP. They'll be built in in um in our Hillsborough data center, and they'll be built in Sunnyvale. So we'll have a big grid across the board, right? Uh, and that'll be sort of like step one. And then, of course, it'll be AltaVolts distributed to to throw data into it. So today, as uh, Stetson mentioned, I mentioned earlier too, is that we have some backup software that needs to talk to Altable to send uh, to send uh, you know the backup images if you're doing NDMP, for example. Uh, but in the future, you know, we are building this infrastructure with the with the expectation that we'll be able to instead of doing all this uh, on top to on top mirroring that we do today, doing some of the on top to storage grid or on top to Altable mirroring, depending on what the use case is. You know, we always do the technology. It, it's not available right now to be consumed. So, so we're but we're building it with the expectation of having the ability to go from snapshot to uh, uh, I guess uh, snap vault or snap mirror over to auto vault, and then that being archived to whatever retention we needed to do. So, it will change the way that we do data protection in the future. But you know, we need to build the the groundwork for that to, so to happen. A, as a straight up storage guy, just not a NetApp guy, mm -hmm. how excited were you when you heard? that we were going to be able to snap mirror to whatever we wanted to. Frankly, it sounded uh, too good to be true until I saw the demo. So, <laughs> so, so, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm very excited. I think, I think it really unshackles our ability to, to migrate data to some other, other platforms. Now, we're not just an on-top company anymore. Right? We have a, a product portfolio, and they need to be talking to each other. And this is something that you know, when, when I was an SE, we talked about negatively about the other guys. They don't they don't talk to each other. You have to that solution with that and that solution with that. Now we have a, a fabric of solutions that do specific things, and we can move the data around. It's, it's it, I don't know. It sounds really good. It's fantastic. Yeah, like I I really keyed in uh, Stetson when you said, "Do we really need cataloging?" Right. Mm. 
uh, in my mind, th- this becomes part of that future backend decision flow, right? If, if we don't need a catalog because we don't need item level restoration, you know, seven years from now, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then, then, then from a data protection management perspective, you know, here in the, the near future, that's going to be just changing a snap mirror destination from a secondary snap fault location to a AltaVault target and, you know, just forgetting about it because, you know, between the global dedupe and encryption and compression, that thing is just going to cram that storage in on, on as few spindles as humanly possible. Uh, and then by layering that with storage grid, we get uh, geodispersity and, and all the durability from a data protection perspective so that it really is just a slam dunk architecture. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to manage it. And we're completely protected top to bottom, left to right. And it simplifies it too. You know, there's going to be less you know, moving pieces, ultimately. Yeah. So, so being the tools guy on, on the team, there's a vision that I have about where we're, where we're headed and how are we going to, to document this. We keep talking about the data fabric. What I want to do is go into every object that we have, whether it's a volume, a loan, or anything, and ask each object through Unified Manager, what's your source and what's your destination? And I want to do that for everything that I discover in the inventory. I have a feeling that once I go through that and I start mapping it all together, therein lies the data fabric. I will have exposed the data fabric by doing just that. So what I'm actually doing, I'm actually working with some of our um, coding folks in NetApp IT, and, and I want to actually take all of that information, pull it from, through the APIs, and plug it into the CMDB and let it be exposed there. So anyone, I don't care if they're, they're a project manager, a storage guy, an application owner, because it's in the CMDB, it's available to them, and they will have that information. I hope that everybody's picking up a theme that we haven't really expressed yet, but it's, it's happening in, in both these podcasts, and that is simplicity. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Make it easy to adopt and consume solutions from NetApp. And that's where we're all driving to a point, is to make it very easy to, to do that. Well, I think, I think and part of that is, is you know, the, you know, listen, we all work for NetApp. This is a NetApp podcast. Uh, it, hmm. it, it is what it is. Um, we've, we hear feedback, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we all talk to customers, uh, even, even the NetApp IT guys, right? NetApp on NetApp. You guys interface with customers directly and do IT to IT level conversations, uh, not sales related. Just, hey, here's an IT manager who comes and talks to our IT manager for the sake of how are you guys doing it? I need help. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, every layer of this company is is solely focused on on that that end customer uh, problem solving. We do that with an incredibly sophisticated tool set, and and that tool set allows us to build solutions that solve literally any problem you can think of. Um, and and because that tool set is so sophisticated, often we get feedback of like this is just too hard, it's too complicated, mm-hmm. and and truth of the matter is it's it's really not. It really does come down to how are you consuming? What is your, your, your model? How do you manage it? Do you even have a plan? If not, you need one. Yes. You know, there are too many moving pieces in, in 2015. You know, the, the rate of change and technology and everything that's going on right now, you can't cowboy this anymore. It's mm-hmm. not good enough. The, the, this is, there's a coin that I have for this, which is here is where the geek needs to earn his MBA. 
he's transitioning from a speeds and feeds and technical person to a, a true business person. So you have to have a, a, a business problem you're trying to solve. You have to have a plan. It needs to be a business plan. And then that business plan feeds into your technology plan. That's the direction in which it needs to flow. Before, we would just walk up to the device and just start turning knobs and say, oh, this is cool. Look at the blinking lights. And we'd get all tangled up in ourselves. And yeah. That can't happen anymore. And, and you're seeing very real resistance to that notion, right? I mean, you got the geeks who just like to tinker. They mm-hmm. like to just play with the technology. But that's not going to be good enough anymore. Like, like Glenn said, you, know, you have to be able to know how it affects your business if you're going to survive. And this is why the notion of cloud is so disruptive the entire industry, right? It isn't because it's a technology. It's because it's a business model of simplicity mm-hmm. uh, targeted to the business need. And um, we're seeing all IT leaders now struggle with, how do I jump on this bandwagon? And, of course, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, go outside. Go use somebody's external cloud. But the better reaction is, how do I transform my own IT organization to function as a cloud provider? And uh, the more we can help customers do that, the faster they can move, the more they'll adopt our technology. And cloud is such an important piece of the data protection piece, right? I mean, you're, you're going to see a lot of people foregoing tape, foregoing on-prem backups to go into the cloud because it may make more financial sense for them, especially when you get into the small, medium businesses, right? I mean, they're not going to want to pay for all that architecture, mm-hmm. all that you know, headcount just to manage their backups when they can get somebody else to do it for them at lower cost and only have to pay for it really when they have to access it. Mm-hmm. I often get, a- get asked the question, what is the line between internal and external? And there's two questions that I help people think through if you want to get really, really simple. One is, how much do I need to control it? And how much do I need, how long do I need to use it? It's the rental car analogy, right? Mm. You, you would rent a car for three days. You wouldn't rent a car for five years, right? And so as we help customers think through this, it's wherever you've got this bursty, cyclical kind of need that external cloud makes sense. But wherever I have this very fixed, constant need where the payback is there, then that's more of on-premise. And, of course, the hybrid cloud is being able to, be, to do both or either whenever I choose to, depending on the answers to those questions um, around how long do I need to use it, how much do I need to control it. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I feel like we've really kind of picked this problem apart from from several different angles, uh, and and you were all so gracious enough to to quite frankly show us you know the sausage being made. <laughs> you know, you're in the middle of this process right now. Uh, the the, sure. the people in this room are here working this week on this very problem, not not here talking about uh, stuff they did six months ago. I'll tell you, I'm literally deploying storage grade like yesterday, today, and all the narrative as well. So yes, it's happening right now. Maybe we should come back and talk to you when we show up and running and tell you how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and put a, a note in, and I'll put a note in my calendar mm-hmm. to ping you guys in about six months. Uh, very interested in, in getting a retrospective of, of what this looks like, you know, in production. You know, Glenn, I don't think that that horse is dead enough yet. Hold on. All right, now it's dead. I don't know. I think you can get it again. All right, now I'm sold. <laughs> All right, excellent. So, um... Now that we've talked about everything and we've talked to the people that know everything, let's find out where we can find these people that know everything. Eduardo, where can we find you? So I do have a t- Twitter handle. It's Mr. Ed Rivera. Uh, so I'll, I'll, you can find me there. And I guess um, oh, I think that's probably the best way, honestly. What's your Match.com profile? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have one. <laughs> I, I, I use eHarmony. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, find, so find Eduardo in eHarmony, and maybe he will be your soulmate. Stetson, wh- where can we find you? So the, the best way to reach us, actually, Eduardo and I both, would be netappit.com. 
um, that's that's our um, our website. And um, I'm Stetson. Um, I'm at Stetson Webster on Twitter. So netupit.com. Is there any blogs or anything that might be interesting there? Uh, we do have references to all of our blogs and our collateral, and um, and you know we engage with customers and account teams, um, just the same. Um, and we have peer-to-peer discussions. Um, if anyone wants to, you know, if anyone's, you know, um, six months from now, for example, we will have gone much further down the path of what we're deploying. Eduardo too would be available to have a peer-to-peer discussion with a customer, you Ooh. know, and peer-to-peer <laughs> On, from eHarmony or from Twitter. Um, from both actually. Okay. <laughs> So, Evan, where can we find you? Uh, I'm not on eHarmony. Um, <laughs> he's, he's on Tinder. Yeah. He's on Tinder? <laughs> Are we swiping left or right on that? I don't know. Um, Evan C. Miller uh, on Twitter. Uh, Evan.Miller at NetApp.com on email. Um, and for sales guys in NetApp, uh, right-click on an opportunity and request a service design. Excellent, excellent. All right. Horse is dead. <laughs> All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or on SoundCloud or via techontappodcast.com. If you liked the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Net Tech Ontap podcast team, I'd like to thank NetApp IT and the service design team for joining us this week. And as always, thanks for listening. Oh, that went, that went well. Um... So are we are we doing good things today? Uh, I don't know about you, but but I just spilled a monster all over this table in this studio. It's on my phone. I I made I, this is a I need a I need a towel now. I think what you need is a disaster recovery podcast. Oh yeah, that would be funny if there wasn't like sticky liquid all over all this audio equipment. It's not the first time this podcast room has been sticky. Oh.